If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 3, as we approach one of the most popular, the most famous verses in all of Scripture. As you're doing so, I want to thank you for the opportunity. Um, for me, I've been out of, um, out of town the past week and a half. I was able to attend a uh, biblical counseling conference in uh, Santa Clarita, California. I had a wonderful time. Um, it was a very enriching time, and I know that a lot of what I learned will be shared with you in the coming weeks and months. And then my family, we were able to uh, take some time off and to go to um, Orange Beach and just spend some time together. Um, One thing that that did is it gave me two weeks to think about this sermon, um, which come to find out was needed. Um, Again, one of the most popular, one of the most quoted, one of the widest known verses in all of Scripture, and my original intention was to cover this whole section, uh, 16 to 21, but today we're just going to cover verse 16. I think it is that important, and how many times does a pastor in his ministry get to preach this verse? And so we're really going to settle in here. Now, let's um, take a step back and uh, remind ourselves of the context we find ourselves in. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a Pharisee, a biblical scholar, a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus. And in this conversation, Nicodemus comes to ask questions of Jesus. And no matter the questions that Nicodemus asked, what he really wanted to know was how can I enter the kingdom of God? That's his heart's desire. With all of his background, with all of his information, with all of his knowledge, what he craves the most is how can I enter the kingdom of God? And what we've seen in John chapter 3 is Jesus shows him, you've got it wrong. Nicodemus, you've got to be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you've got to have new life. Nicodemus, if you would only understand the Old Testament, the subject of your study that you're supposed to be a preeminent scholar of, you would get it. The Son of Man has to be raised up. He has to be lifted that the people of God might live. Well, after all of these things and this long discussion, we find ourselves here at John 3, verse 16. And here in John 3, verse 16, Jesus tells Nicodemus plainly. Again, the question being asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers, and please follow along with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is their judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of God. Would you please bow with me as we go before him in prayer? Almighty Lord, our creator, our maker, our sustainer, our friend, as we approach this passage this day, as we ask of ourselves the question that Nicodemus asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Lord, may we find great comfort, great hope, great encouragement in these truths that are before us. Help us, Lord, to see this text with new eyes this day. And by the power of your spirit, would you open our ears and our hearts that we might receive the truth of your text today. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word. May it be glorifying to you and beneficial to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In one of my preaching labs in seminary, uh, our professor told a story of his time in preaching lab. And the professor at that time got up on the balcony in the chapel. And he said, each of you are tasked with getting me down. The building is on fire. Now you get in that pulpit and you get me down from here. He said one student got up and tried to reason with him. Think about your job. Think about your family. Think about the consequences. Another student resolved to begging, please get down. Please come on down. You cannot stay up there. You must leave the balcony. But the professor said the student that won the day got into the pulpit with passion and with intensity said, get down now. The building is on fire. You are going to die. I remember that lesson, as did my professor, for this simple point. It is important to speak deep theological truths of the Word of God, for God's Word is full of deep theological truths. There is time for argumentation, and there is time for reason, and there is time for all sorts of uh, conversations related to and, and tied into the Word of God. But sometimes what we need most is to be told plainly and clearly what God's Word says. In all sense, right now, we could pray and conclude the service because we've heard God's Word as clear as it can be said. You need this text as much as that man needed to get down off the balcony. And so what we're going to do this morning, you have my outline, which will suffice for this week and Lord willing, next week. We're simply going to consider this one point. Jesus Christ is the plan of salvation. It's the greatest thing I can tell you today. It fits, it solves your greatest need that you have today. And it will equip you to go out into the world and tell others about their greatest problem and their greatest need. And so we're just going to work our way through this verse this morning. Coming to terms with the fact that Jesus is the plan of salvation. And I want to just take this verse and break it apart clause by clause. 
so that we understand. And one thing I ask of you this morning as we begin, try to hear these words with new ears. You've been listening to this Bible verse since you were a wee child if you grew up in the church. We, we teach it in our nursery. We teach it in our preschool. We teach it um, in our Sunday school classes. We ask it of our new members. Um, this, this verse, this idea uh, permeates all of who we are and what we believe. But listen as if you're Nicodemus this morning. Listen as if you've never heard these words before. And Jesus Christ is speaking to you today. And hear them with fresh ears and fresh minds. And so let's, let's pick it apart. For God, our creator, our maker, our sustainer, the one who upholds all things, who has the universe in his hands, he is the one who speaks and who acts here in this verse. And what does he do? He loves. Our God loves for our God so loved the world. God has a level of love, a, a degree of compassion, a, 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 a heart that is um, willing and able to care for whom? Who does God care for? Our text says the world. Now, this is why it took two weeks to prepare this sermon. B.B. Um, Warfield said there's no less than eight interpretations of this word world. And John Owen said, no, there's no less than 16 interpretations for this word world. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, you will see this word used numerous times. But it's vital we understand this. Again, we're trying to be plain this morning. God, the creator, the maker, so loved cared for, provided for the world. And so we must reconcile what this word means. Now, does it mean creation? Often we use that word world to mean the world, earth, the plants, the trees, the grass, the, the fish, the birds, mankind. And often that is the right reading of this word. I do not think it's the right reading of this word in this verse. But we recognize that God does have a love for his creation. That God does appreciate that which he made in Genesis. He says it was good. However, I think we can do better. Another way that we could interpret this word world could mean all of mankind, everybody that has or will ever live. There are certain theological systems that hang their entire theological view on interpreting this verse this way. For God so loved everyone that he sent his son, dying for all of them, paying the price for each individual person, that whosoever chooses him will not Perish. This is, again, it's, it's a predominant, it's probably the prevailing view of this verse. However, I do not think it's the best way to interpret this verse. There's a lot of theological implications on interpreting this verse that way, but the primary one is this. 
Our greatest problem is we are unholy, unrighteous, and sinful before a holy, righteous, and unsinful God. He has told us to obey and we have disobeyed. He said the punishment or the payment for disobedience will be death. And we deserve that death. And on the day of judgment, we will have to give an account for our lives. And if that payment is not made, we will suffer the consequences. Now, if this verse is interpreted, is read, for God so loved the world, as in God loved everyone equally in the same way, and Jesus Christ came, he died, he shed his blood for everyone equally in the same way, then whether we choose him or not, why is it fair that anyone be in hell? If the payment has been made, what's the difference if we ask for it or not? You see what I mean here? This, this, is a, this, is, this gets kind of complicated, and, and this may grate at some of you today. That's okay. But that being said, I don't think that's the best interpretation of this verse. I think we can do better. I think we can do better because when we take a verse of the Bible, when we take a passage of Scripture, we take a text in its context. In its context. Who is talking in this verse? Jesus. Who is Jesus talking to in this verse? Nicodemus. What would Nicodemus have understood his world to be? What was the world in Nicodemus's eyes that God loved? Israel, the Jewish people. That was their world. Their world was Israel. Everybody else was a Gentile. It was us and then everybody else. We're the Jews and then there's the others, the Gentile dogs. We don't, we don't deal with them. Jesus, I believe, is saying here, as will we will see all throughout the book of John, Jesus is saying, my love goes beyond Israel. And what a, what a ridiculous statement to a Pharisee like Nicodemus. What, what a concept that would have blown his mind. What do you mean you are God could love someone that's not us. You mean you love the world, all the peoples of the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles also? And Jesus would say to that, yes. <laughs> he would also say to Nicodemus, if you'd understood the Old Testament better, you'd know that was in the system from the beginning. But we're going to see this crop up again and again. When we get to John chapter 4, um, Jesus saves the Samaritan woman. And over and over, as we look at those cast out, those rejected, those um, sent away from the people of Israel, those are the ones that Jesus finds, that he seeks, that he, he comes to interact with. Uh, Romans chapter 9 is a, is a great text for this. The whole chapter is well worth your time. Uh, but, but listen uh, just to, to this, verses 23 and 24. This was done in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not from the Jew only, but also from the Gentile. 
Uh, I listened to a, a fantastic clip this week from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, um, who takes this view of, of world, understanding it as Jew and Gentile. And, and really what he says is, understanding the word world in this way shows the vastness of God's love beyond a people who thought they had exclusive access to it. Now, why does that matter for us this morning? Why even dig into all this in this way? I'm not here to, to rile you up. I'm here to tell you the truth. Do any of you deserve the love of God? Let me ask a different question this morning. And, and don't, don't show show of hands. We're Presbyterian. But um, how many of you here this morning aren't Jewish? And so if we understand God's love in such a way that if you're here and you don't deserve the love of God, by the way, that's all of us, and you're here today and you're not a Jew, then that means you can then read this verse and apply it to your life. How magical, is, or that's a way, that's a terrible word. How magnificent is that? That God's love can extend to people like you and me, even though we don't deserve it and we're not Jewish by birth. That's God's love for the world, the peoples of the world. We don't even need to cover the other 14 interpretations because they get complicated. But let's, let's keep going through and, and see if we can really hone in on this, this verse. For God so loved the world that he did what? What was the expression of God's love? That he gave his only Son, many of you, because um, you memorized this as a child and maybe you were like me and learned it in the King James, his only begotten son. God gave his son, his only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus will tell us in the, in the gospels, no one takes my life, I give it up freely. There's a unity, there's a cohesion, there's agreement amongst the Trinity Man fell into sin by disobedience. The Trinity said, we will go. We will go and bring salvation to a people that do not deserve it, that did not earn it. In fact, they scorned us. And let me ask you this this morning. Put yourself in, in, in Jesus' shoes would you have gone? Would you have gone? They have violated your commandments. They have blasphemed your name. They have made a mockery of your precepts. You know what you're going to have to do. It, Jesus was not surprised on the cross. He knew what it meant. He knew the cost that was going to have to be paid. And yet he willingly, willingly went not to pick on any of us too badly, um, Jonah was told by God, go to Nineveh. Where did he go? He went to a ship. He tried to go to Tarshish. He was so scared of obeying the word of God when the storm came, he said, drown me, because that would be a whole lot better for me than doing what God said. <laughs> now put that back in our own lives and our own hearts. How many of us, when God says go, are going? How many of us are getting up and serving 
despite the cost, despite the payment, despite what it may mean. And then apply that to your Savior because He knew and He went. Something I read over the last couple of weeks, I forget where I read it. It was asking this question, what would you do if you knew today was the last day of your life? What would you do if you knew today was it? This is what you get. Well, Jesus did and He washed the feet of His disciples. The most lowly, humble, humiliating task He could have done. That, did, that wasn't even relegated to Jewish servants. And yet Jesus served because that's how much God loves his people. And so a follow-up question, and this is an important question, and, and, and I pray that you ask it this morning, how do I get it? I want that kind of love. I want that. That is profound. That is extraordinary. That is beyond any kind of love that I could conceive or comprehend. And Jesus knows we would ask that question, so he answers, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I want to say this as simply as I can this morning. Believe in Jesus Christ, and you will live. Believe in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean to believe? What does that mean to, to say that we believe in him? Well, we can go to our confession for help on that. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, on saving faith, says this in paragraph 2, that principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Do you trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Can he make payment required of your life? Is his shed blood enough to cover all of your sins that you have or will commit? That is what it means to believe in him. To say, yes, he is enough. And I accept that on my behalf. If you want it given to you even shorter, um, I love our catechism, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, shorter catechism, question 86, what is faith in Jesus Christ? It answers, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as it's offered to us in the gospel. Receive and rest. And this is one of my biggest points of application this morning. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do you receive that? Do you believe that? Is that true for you? Did Christ die for you? Is his payment enough for you? That's part one. Then part two, then live like it. Rest. How do we rest? We rest when we're not anxious. We rest when we're not worried. We're rest, we rest when we're not consumed with the what ifs and the maybes and the how wills and all of those things. If Jesus has died for you, you will live. Period. Live like it. Believe it. Act like it. Trust it. 
And what will be the consequence or the conclusion? What, what, what will happen to us because of this? Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That should there can be misleading. And this is another reason we're trying to just walk through this text and be plain and be clear. It, it, it's misleading in English, I should say. In the Greek, and, and you really could translate it like this, will. And in your, some of your translations, it may use the word will. Will not perish. Don't read that as a maybe. Don't, don't read that as a, hmm, there's a chance. The other thing you need to be careful of here is it's, it's, this is not a, a, an escape death clause. Mankind, because of sin, will face death. Or Jesus is going to come back before we die. There is no escaping that. Two, two figures in the Bible, um, apart from Christ, um, were, were, were raised to heaven. But we will face death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me try to make this practical for you this morning. I want to try to do it this way. The, the statistics show the average lifespan of an American, given our diet and our culture and all that, it, it's only on the rise. Um, it is about 80 it's about 80. And so let's just use 80 for, for some mathematical purposes here. Imagine you were born. And imagine the week of your birth, and, and you're going to have to stretch some things with me. You trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You become a Christian on that first week of your life. I don't know how God did it, but God did it. And then you go home to a negligent family. You receive a terrible education. You work in a job that barely pays your bills. You struggle and you strain and you have hardship and you have difficulty and you have strife and people treat you unfairly and nothing seems to go your way and you press and you press and you press and the next thing you know you're 80 years old and on your 80th birthday you die. This text says if you believe in him you will not perish but have eternal life. And so now you stand before God in heaven. He asks why should I let you into my kingdom? You say but by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then from that point forward, eternity, point forward, it's a ray, my math nerds, peace, love, hope, joy, rest, contentment, life, abundant. Now put the two together. You're in heaven for 10,000, thousand years and you, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And if you're able, I don't even know if you're gonna be able to, I'm inclined to think you're not, you look back on those 80 years of strife and misery and hardship. Are you gonna compare the two? Are you gonna go to God and go, God, I sure wish you'd have treated me better those 80 years. This is awful unfair as I sit here in paradise worshiping with angels and the saints praising your name for the rest of eternity. For the Christian, our time here on earth is as bad as it gets. Let me put it differently. This is your hell. 
if I can say it that bluntly. This is as bad as it gets for you as a believer, no matter how bad it is, and it can be bad. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not trying to make light of it. It can be bad. Bad things happen in this world. This is as bad as it gets, but that will pale in comparison as to eternity if we but believe in him. Now, we're required, we're, we're forced to invert our scenario. You're born, you're granted 80 years of life, and you seek to make it the best you can have here. I want what I want. I don't care how I get it, what corners I cut, whose feelings I hurt. I'm going to make it to the top, and I'm going to have it. And I want to make sure I get it right. You live your life by the mantra of Frank Sinatra. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. More, much more than that. I did it. I did it my way. And then you die. Your 80th birthday, you die. And you stand before God, your maker, and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? And you say, I did everything I could, and I got it, and I grabbed it, and I accomplished it, and look at who I am. And he looks at you and says, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's a misconception to believe that hell is the absence of God. We're actually told in Scripture, hell is the presence of God's wrath for all eternity. And so again, that ray from that point forward is judgment, is wrath, is vengeance for disobedience, for mocking God, for blaspheming his name, for mistreating his people, for belittling the church, for attacking Christians on and on and on and on. And there's no verse to Amazing Grace or I'll Fly Away or any of those hymns that address this, but 10,000, thousand years of that. And then if you could, and I don't know if you can, you look back at those 80 years on earth and you go, wow, that's as close as I ever got to heaven. That's as good as it ever got for me. That's all I've got to look forward to. That's all I've got to hold on to to give me hope. It's not going to hold you up. That's not going to keep you, allow you to sleep at night. That's not going to give you hope and comfort and peace and rest as the years go by and you stand in full condemnation and judgment of the sin that you committed. And so, what do we do? What do we do? That's what Nicodemus is asking. What do I do, God? Whether he's recognizing Jesus as God at this point or not, he's, what do I do? How do I, how do I get out of this cycle? That's not what I want. If you're asking those questions this morning, the answer is simple. It's from the text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe in him. Trust he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Receive and rest upon him alone as he's offered in the gospel. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, don't forget that second part of faith. Receive and rest. Receive and rest. Because if you believe, then that last clause is triggered. 
You should not perish but have eternal life. That's what's coming. That's what's ahead. That's what's awaiting you. We're gonna have bad Mondays and we're gonna have late Thursday nights and we're gonna have hardship and we're gonna have difficulty and we're gonna have trials and it's not gonna be easy. But look at what's coming. I made a note in here, it, it's fun, and, and we Presbyterians are very prone to it, to, to discuss and debate the deep theological truths of the faith. And I even said, tell them, if you want to debate, debate superlapsarianism versus imperlapsarianism, come see me this week. I really don't want to. Um, those are two very deep in the weeds theological terms. I'm going to hand you Louis Burkhoff, um, who says, what's the point? That's good. If you want to come this week and talk about Hebrew and Greek and you want to help me nuance this verse, I've been looking at it for two weeks. I still don't think I've got it exactly right. Come, we'll, we'll, we'll geek out over Mounts' Greek vocabulary. That's fine. But I tell you this morning, I cannot tell you anything more precious, more necessary, or more comforting than what you've heard this day. Again, my goal this morning was to shoot you straight. You're on the balcony. The building is on fire. Talk me down. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The very heart of the gospel, the, the Bible itself condensed in one sentence this day. You need it. I need it. This world needs it. And so let's go forth, receive and rest in him alone, and live as if this is true. Let us pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, what a joyful passage this morning. What a, what a privilege it is to hear these words and to hear these truths. And Lord, for all of us, whether we have heard these and believed them from childhood or we're hearing them for the first time this day, God, would we believe in Christ, our Savior, And Father, I, I pray as we go into this week, our work week, as we go into our interactions with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, would we live as if this verse is real? Because it is. Would we live as, as if the blessings are true? Because they are. Would we live as if this is what awaits us for the believer? Because it is. Father, strengthen us, encourage us, give us comfort in the days ahead. May your word be an ever-present reality in our minds and in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.